This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? What the hell is going on is this week, Title 42 is going away. Title 42, for those, for the few of you who might not know, is the uh, public health measure that the Trump administration put in after COVID pandemic began that allowed our government uh, to, to send back migrants at the border. And it has been used to expel uh, migrants at our border 2.6 million times over the last three years. And it's going away, which means that now it's probably not. It's probably going to be more than 2.6 million over time because once it goes away, uh, more people are going to come because they think they can get into the country. So we are bracing right now for if you if you thought the border crisis uh, was bad over the last uh, and getting worse over the last three years, you ain't seen nothing yet because people are going to be coming. They're already coming in advance of the lifting of Title 42. And this problem is getting getting a lot worse before it gets better. Mark, do you have the numbers for people? Because I think that nothing illustrates yes. how big of a problem this has become uh, better than looking at the exponential growth of numbers of, and maybe you can also help me understand the difference between what the Border Patrol calls encounters and how many people are actually showing up, because I don't actually get it. Well, so in terms of encounters are the people who are actually encountered by the Border Patrol uh, and either expelled or processed or allowed into the country. It's anyone that get, comes into contact with the Border Patrol. Then you have what are known as gotaways, uh, which are people who do not come into contact with the Border Patrol. And are, but we can estimate that them based on uh, aerial footage and other things like that. So the numbers on, on encounters uh, in 2020, there were 646,822 encounters. That grew in 2021 to 1.956 million, which grew in 2022 to 2.766 million, which has now so far in this fiscal year, 2023, is already at 1.544 million. So those are, those are the encounters. In terms of gotaways, in 2021, there were nearly 390,000 known gotaways. That's, so that's people they know because they observed them somehow and they got away uh, who came into our country. Last year, that grew to 600,000 people. So that's a huge increase. In 2021, there were 15 terrorism watch list arrests at the border. Last year, that grew to 98. And we have no idea how many of those are in the growth of the gotaways because the worst people are going to come in are gonna, who come in are going to be the gotaways because they're trying to get away for a reason. They don't think that if they encounter the Border Patrol uh, that they're going to be uh, allowed into the country or because they're doing something nefarious, either bringing in drugs or Correct. human trafficking and all the rest of it. And then the other thing, which is heartbreaking for me, is that in, in 2021, 557 migrants are known to have died crossing the border illegally. Last year, that grew to almost 800, um, and it's growing faster. So this is a, it's a crisis because it is a humanitarian crisis. 
People are coming to this to, to the border in huge numbers. They're dying at the border. Uh, there are children who are coming at the border who are being sex trafficked by the coyotes. There's I don't know what the exact statistics are, but there is a very high percentage of young girls who are brought over here who are are raped on the way uh, coming in. There are children who are being abused uh, in the process. The cartels are also using the migrants to sneak drugs into the country. What they do, and this is documented, is that they they bring a group of migrants and they put them at one point and create a humanitarian crisis where the Border Patrol has to go rescue them and then they bring the drugs over other parts of it. You know, this is a particularly hitting places like Eagle Pass and some of the border towns, but it's hitting every city in America because part of the rise in crime in our cities is the rise in drug crime. Um, the rise in fentanyl um, and, and that's, uh, that's crossing into our border. And so this is, this is a humanitarian catastrophe for the migrants. It's a humanitarian catastrophe for our country. It's an economic catastrophe for our country, and it's about to get worse. Well, as Mark knows, uh, and you all are about to find out, I think that you know there are there are areas that are worth focusing on as as a source of this problem. But we can quibble about the numbers, and Mark and I did that offline while you guys weren't listening to us. Uh, but you cannot quibble about the fact that we, for many intents and purposes, have an open border. And you know, I said, eighty-five percent, eighty-four percent of fentanyl comes across legal. Legal crossings, but we don't know what does you know what comes across with illegal crossings. We don't know, just as Mark just said, we don't know you know what percentage of children are raped, what percentage of women are trafficked. We don't know how many terrorists. And the reason we don't know is not to impugn the integrity of the vast mass of these people who are coming across for economic opportunity. It is to impugn our government that is intended to control our borders. There is no reason on earth why we have to sit around at Dulles Airport and wait in line, and they can manage that, and yet they have totally given up on the southern border. And I want to tell, I want to tell our listeners something else about Title 42, because this isn't my area of expertise. Mark's done a lot more work on domestic politics. Uh, it's not my area. And one of the absolutely incredible things about Title 42, right, this was solving our problem in the sense that you could scoop up, you know, guy A and, and woman B and send them back to Guatemala or Honduras or Venezuela or wherever the hell they were coming from. But it's not a legal process. And so if you were if you were snagged for doing that and they got your name, you could come back any number of times under Title 42 and there would be no as there would be if you were if you were caught under a different system, there's no double jeopardy problem, right? You can just keep coming. This is basically a system that funds traffickers. Hey, well, it took you 10K the first time, your life savings, your village's savings, but hey, it didn't work out and you didn't get killed. Let's try again. I mean, the whole system is, I, I, I swore during our, our interview, and I'll swear again, it is beyond fucked up that this is going on and I cannot think of a single aspect of this that that if you if you said that the United States of America was doing it people would say that's not even possible yeah well it is possible and here's the problem is that title 42 has been sort of the gum and bailing wire holding our border together it shouldn't be we should we should not be depending on a public health measure 
to secure our border as the only thing between preventing an absolute deluge of anybody who wants to cross the border just coming across willy-nilly. And the reality is that's what it's been. We've been depending because Biden has systematically dismantled all of the other policies that had that had gotten our border under under some modicum of control. And as a result, this was the only thing that was holding it together. He got rid of the remain in Mexico policy. He got rid of the safe third country agreements the previous administration negotiated with uh, with Central American countries. He has effectively stopped deportations. And here's the thing. He didn't just dismantle the Trump policies on the border. He dismantled the Obama policies on the border. Obama was known as the deporter in chief. He was criticized by the left as the deporter in chief because he deported three million illegal immigrants into this country. Biden has stopped doing that. But Mark, I don't what I don't get in. I mean, yeah, okay. you know, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the Biden administration in a whole bunch of different areas. I don't get who they thought they were serving by doing this. It is not as if Hispanics polled believe that the United States should have an open border. It's not as if the vast mass of Democrats believe that we should have an open border. Who exactly did the Biden administration think it was pandering to? The activist left, the people who run this party. I mean, truly, the vast mass of people also don't want to spend trillions of dollars of money. But but the reality is that that's what the professional left wants. The, the people who come and who have access to the Biden White House and who beat them up whenever they try and do anything to secure the border because they think we should have an open border. And there's a, there, that is what the activist left wants. Uh, so that, that's who they're pandering to. Um, and it's, even, it's not even that they're pandering to them. It's just that Trump was so bad that anything Trump did, we had to get rid of. Never mind that before Trump came along, Democrats voted for border, border fencing. Over and over again, as soon as Donald Trump was for a border wall and talked about it, all of a sudden, no Democrat could be for a border wall. If Trump had them remain in Mexico policy, orange man bad, had to be bad. We got to get rid of it. If Trump negotiated agreement with Central American countries that you had to go, that you had to apply for asylum in the first country you were even, we have to get rid of it. And so it's a reflexive anti-Trumpism. Yeah, but Mark, Mark, wait, 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 wait. But I'm sorry. Part of what, part of what stained... Trump's legitimate efforts in this regard and some of their better ideas was was Trump's obvious bigotry, right? Uh, talking about Mexican rapists and then going on and talking about, you know, judges in much the same way. That is the problem. That is one of the reasons why this discussion has become so, so difficult. And it, it, I don't want to, I don't want to put it all on Donald Trump because the discussion was difficult 20 years ago. Otherwise, we would have solved this problem. But let us not let our horrible orange man off the hook entirely. I'm not letting him off the hook entirely. I'm just saying to you that he that he actually got control of this border. And by the way, the other thing, you touched on something in our interview, which I think also uh, vindicates him to some extent, which is that one of the reasons why the countries in Central America are which should be restraining their their citizens and 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 cracking down on this are not is because of the remittances that come back which right. you you do a very good job of pointing this out and we'll get to that in the interview but you know what then then the answer to that is if you want a country to do something um, and they're benefiting from the policy of failure then the way to get them to do it is to make the punishment worse than the benefit and that's why when the only reason that Mexico, I'm, I'm personally not for tariffs 
as a general rule. But you know what? The only reason Mexico sent its National Guard to its southern border to, to, to get control of this is because Trump said he was going to put tariffs on them if they didn't. And they were and they were and that was that threat was enough that it got them to actually crack down on this for a long time. And as soon as Biden came in, right. all of a sudden, everyone said, OK, bad orange man's gone. No problem. Now we can go back to doing things the way we used to do. To. And so all this, the, the corrupt Mexican government has stopped enforcing its southern border, has stopped cooperating with like that and let the floodgates go and all the Central American countries. OK, we can get our remittances now. We can get our billions of dollars uh, that are that are more than we get in USAID. Let's do that. The way to do it is to put some to actually punish them and say, okay, if you're not going to control your border, then there's going to be pain and we're going to impose it on you. And unless you have somebody who's willing to do that, it's not going to get solved. Do you think that, yes, all right, you think we ought to impose pain on them, but we're not doing a good job controlling our border either. What, what should we do? We should be doing a well, first of all, let's put back all the policies that actually got, got it down to 600,000 instead of 3 million a, a year. That might be a helpful. Let's not reflexively throw everything out just because people hate Donald Trump. Everything that he did uh, was not bad. Uh, you know, I mean, that would be like saying, let's get rid of the Abraham Accords because orange men negotiated them. And the other thing that drives me crazy is Biden, you know, saying, you know, that he, he, he the reason why he had to do what he did in Afghanistan was because Trump tied his hands with all these agreements, with this agreement he signed with the Taliban. He had no agency whatsoever, but he didn't seem to be bound by all the agreements that Trump had at the southern border. Those were fine to get rid of. You know, it's all it's all an argument of convenience. For, for the uh, these people. And the reality is, I, I'm the first to acknowledge that Donald Trump says a lot of things that I did that I that I find offensive. He did a lot of things that I found offensive. He was successful in getting this border semi under control, despite the opposition of Democrats who wouldn't fund the border uh, border wall, wouldn't fund all these things. And, you know, we've we've ripped that out and look at the result. And guess what, Danny, if you hate Donald Trump, this could bring him back yeah. because there was a Washington Post poll. This week that shows that he is beating uh, beating Joe Biden by seven points. This reflexive anti-Trumpism could bring him right back into the Oval Office. So we ought to be careful not to. Folks, you heard it here first. Yep. If Donald Trump is the Republican nominee, it is going to be Danny Plutka's fault. <laughs> <laughs> like with so many that, other disasters in our country. <laughs> with, with that searing political insight... Let us introduce our guest. Andrew Silly is the president of the Migration Policy Institute. Uh, it's a nonpartisan institution, and you're going to hear it's pretty nonpartisan. He's uh, he's all about the numbers and interested in the people and the solutions. Uh, he also chairs MPI's Europe Administrative Council. He spent 17 years at the Woodrow Wilson Center, where he founded the center's Mexico Institute, and he's worked on Capitol Hill, served on the board of the YMCA, and is a, a, a good guy just for doing that alone and for everything else. Here's our interview. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Mark, Danny, great to be here with you. So Title 42 is about to expire this week. The Biden administration has had years to prepare and it doesn't look like they're prepared. <laughs> it looks like there's chaos. There is uh, chaos. And there's been chaos for two years at the southern border, but it, le it looks like we haven't seen chaos. Joe Biden has said, hold my beer. I can well, make it worse. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's been chaos since 2018. that was briefly stopped by COVID. But, you know, I, I think we haven't dealt with the larger issues there. We haven't figured out a system that works. And 
you know, government works best when it's under pressure, but that doesn't mean it uh, works on time or gets the right solutions or anything else. Yeah, I think you're right. This is going to be chaos starting on Friday. I think we should expect, I mean, we're seeing a surge right now because people don't know what's going to happen. There's a a surge of people thinking they might be able to get across. Some people are trying now because they've realized that it's going to be harder or they think it may be harder after Thursday. And some people are waiting until Friday. (laughs) Right, exactly. So there's a mixed messages and there's lots of movement. And I think we should assume there'll be lots of chaos for a while. But I do actually think they've come up with some ideas that could work in the long term. That doesn't mean they will work. But I mean, you know, if, if they're implemented right and they get a little bit lucky, there's a there's a, a chance we might get to something that works. Over like what? Time. So, look, I think they have realized that you need to make decisions about people coming to the United States a lot earlier. Right. When people get to the border, it's too late. There may be, you know, exceptional cases where people qualify for asylum and are extreme cases and you need to let them in. But the more you can vet people for protection needs earlier on in the hemisphere, much better. The more you can give people real information about legal ways of coming to the country. And there are a lot of there aren't enough legal ways to come into the country, not enough to meet the labor demand in the U.S., not enough to meet the the supply of people that want to come. But there are a lot more than people know about. The more you can give people real transparent information, the better. And then you have to be a lot more rigorous at the border and you have to be willing if people don't arrive, you know, with either – a determination they need protection or a, a legal entry, you know, some way of entering legally, usually a visa, but it can be other ways, that you need to be able to return them to their country of origin, unless it's a real exceptional circumstance. I think they've built the, the thing of that, that architecture finally, you know, but that's been something that the uh, we haven't done for many years. So, Andrew, let's talk a little bit about the border before we talk about the policies. The numbers really are staggering. I know you You know where I stand on these issues. Mark and I are super pro-legal immigration, right? Immigrants built this country. Uh, we need them not simply for work, but in order to develop the next uh, iPhone and uh, and to, to do all of the wonderful things that immigrants have done for this country for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. This is not the issue we're talking about, though. What we're talking about now is without characterizing the people, we're talking about hordes of people seeking to cross the border in totally unregulated fashion. You said very nicely that one of the reasons they come is opportunity, but of course one of the reasons why they're exploited by traffickers and one of the reasons why they overwhelm our system is also opportunity. Talk to us a little bit about what the situation is that we see at the border today. Where are they coming from? Who are they? What's going on and why are they there? Yeah, I have no argument with the people that come. On the contrary, I think many of us would make exactly the same decision they're making given the information they have, right? They're trying to improve. Most people are trying to improve the circumstance of their families. Some people are, are, you know, running from danger, but most people are looking to improve the livelihood of their families. Look, a, a, they're economic a lot of us migrants. Would, they're economic migrants. There are some people seeking protection, but there's a large number of economic migrants. And there are people who are seeking protection who might be able to be protected somewhere else as well, right? We should be honest about that. So there, there's lots of reasons why people come. And, you know, we should have great respect for them and the decision they've made to try and improve their family's livelihood. But that's not how you build a policy, right? At the same time, letting lots of people in in ways that aren't regulated, that don't follow the immigration laws in the books, 
tends to corrode people's faith in the immigration system. And I think we've gotten to a point where most Americans are overwhelmingly favorable towards immigration, right? They, people want immigrants. They know right now, in fact, we need immigrants in the labor force. Part of this country, as you say, Danny, has been built on, you know, innovation and entrepreneurship of people who come from the outside, come from other countries and enrich our country. And we're at a point where most of the labor force growth is going to be from immigrants, not from native-born workers. So, yes, we need immigration, but if if we're getting a supply of workers who are coming not through the legal immigration system, it creates an enormous skepticism towards immigration. And you see this in the polls. People are still favorable to immigration. They're really worried about the border, right? And it depends how you ask the question, what people tell you. And people can hold those two. It's not that people are anti-immigrant or pro-immigrant. People are generally pro-immigrant in the sense that they want immigration in this country, but they want to know that there's a real legal pathway that people are coming in. Now, I think there are two questions here. One is how do you build the legal pathways because we don't have them in the ways we need them. But two, also, how do you maintain the integrity of the system we have at the border? And you got to do both of those. Well, you can't do the latter until you do the former. You know, the prerequisite for any kind of immigration reform is a secure border. Nobody's going to do anything on an immigration reform until we get the border secure. And this is a man-made disaster. This started this disaster, you know, because Biden came in and, and, and just lifted all of the Trump policies at the border and put out a welcome mat. I think it started before that, actually. I mean, we, we wrote a report back in 2013. We started this in 2011, looking at Central American migration. And we said, actually, and, and Carlos Gutierrez was the U.S. chair on this, President Cedillo from Mexico, the Mexican chair, the co-chair. We were looking at what was going to happen with Central American migration. We said, look, Central Americans are starting to come in large numbers um, because they now have the family ties. They now have the smuggling networks. This is the next big thing. 2013, the report fell like a, you know, with a huge thud because there really weren't a lot of Central Americans coming yet. 2014, we had the migrant youth crisis, right, where you started to see migrant minors showing up. The numbers kept going up and up and up. And then they really shot up in 2018. You've had on top of that, you know, serious crises in authoritarian societies, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, and Haiti. Well, Haiti is just a, a largely failing state at the moment, right? But the other three are authoritarian governed societies. And then you have the welcome mat, which I think is true, right? But I, but I think that's the third thing because the numbers went up actually in the second half of 2018, if you look at the numbers. They went with, in the fiscal year 2019, there are about a million encounters at the border, actually. Now there's 2 million under Biden. The question is between the million in 2019 and the, you know, slightly over 2 million in, in 2022, you know, what's the delta that is because people were getting momentum and you had all these crises? And what is the fact that, you know, not only the welcome map, but I think that they got less intentional about returning people and more and more people were allowed in on various exceptions into the country. And people said, hey, I have a decent chance of getting in. Right. So what's the you know, what's the cause? I think both of those were operating. Both of those are true. It obviously started before Biden's election, because that's one of the reasons why Donald Trump got elected yes. was that he he was responding to the crisis at the southern border and promising to, to do things. And he did a lot of good things on the southern border. He had the remain in Mexico policy, he had the safe third country agreements with those countries. He got the Mexican government through the threat of tariffs. We talked about this at an AI panel uh, through the threat of tariffs to start sending its National Guard to its southern border to stop the Central American migrants from coming into Mexico in the first place. Don't forget that great comment about about how Mexicans are rapists, too. Yeah, that, that was, was really, really helpful. helpful, Danny. I'm not, listen, all I'm saying is he, he was pretty effective in at least tamping it down, not if not stopping it. And then Biden came in and lifted all those policies. Uh, he got rid of the Remain in Mexico policy. He abrogated the, the Safe Third Country agreements. And, you know, one of the things that he's done 
is he's not just undone Trump's policies, he's undone Barack Obama's immigration policies. Obama was called the deporter in chief because he deported three million illegal migrants. The deportations have all but stopped uh, under Biden. Uh, You know, the prosecutions for illegal entry, which uh, doubled under Obama, have basically stopped under Joe Biden. That's on Trump. Because actually why, why the problem is, why is that on Trump? Why is Biden's failure on Trump? No, that part of the prosecutions is on Trump because Title 42 is not a le- when you expel someone under Title 42, it's not a legal entry. It's counted as though you did not come into the country. So you can't prosecute people for second and third entries, which is what Obama was doing and what Bush started. Actually, it started in the Bush administration. Obama ramped it up. Trump continued it. Title 42 is oddly enough. I mean, it worked really well at the beginning, although it worked well in part because the whole world was stopping. Right. I mean, it was a lot easier also to catch migrants at a time where people weren't out on the road, where people were sort of putting off journeys because, you know, mobility had stopped generally. Buses were not running in many cases. I actually tried at one point to get from, in, in Mexico to get from one point to another on a bus and found out it was impossible to do so during COVID. That was fascinating. Um, from one tourist place to another tourist. I wasn't trying to get into the country. I was trying to, you know, just go to a tourist place. I mean, a lot of transportation had had stopped. Um, So Title 42 worked really well, and it probably would have worked really well at the beginning. But Title 42, actually, what it did was get rid of the consequences for, you know, deporting people, for actually deporting people formally, giving them a bar on entry, and then being able to prosecute them on return. So I agree with you on remain in Mexico might, in hindsight, would have really been a smart idea to at least keep in the back pocket. I, you know, I'm not surprised that they stopped the way it was operating. I'm surprised that they gave it up entirely. And some of us counseled early on that it makes it would be smart to actually hold the line at the border and try and and be more intentional about immigration policy within the country. Think about the legal immigration system. But look, they did it. I think all governments, all of the administrations have made major errors on this. I mean, I don't think the Trump strategy, which was enforcement alone, was going to work. I don't think the Biden strategy, which was, you know, loose on enforcement, was working. And I do think they, you know, some part of the increase owes to that, certainly, um, although some part of the increase was there already. Um, I hope that where we're getting to, and and this is an idea that's been floated in Democratic and Republican administrations and by Democrat and Republican members of Congress, I hope we're getting to a point where we're thinking about how we do protection earlier in the region, how we give people information on legal pathways, and how we're intentional on holding the border at the same time. Right. And that intentionality is really part of what, what Mark is talking about, because, I mean, if you have to choose... You know, if you have to choose between a, let's say, not unonerous process of legal immigration versus a pretty easy, if somewhat sketchy, uh, process of illegal immigration, That's right. you're gonna you're gonna always leave that loophole open. And so you understand why That's people right. say that. Yeah. But but you're right, Danny, if I could just I mean, I think that's part of the equation. I mean, you have to be I actually wrote something that came out this morning that that says exactly that, which is that you need legal pathways in order for enforcement to work. But you also need enforcement for legal pathways to work. Right. People have no you know, they're not going to be driven to use the legal pathways that exist to get in a line to try and get a visa that may take a long time to actually come to fruition or may not. You know, exactly. Unless they feel so one of the things that fascinated me. So, you know, we've talked about this. We know that the root of a lot of this is economic opportunity, okay? And and again, you know, economic people who want to pursue economic opportunity are great people. Uh, I don't want them violating the law to do it, but I, uh, you know, making wanting to make your life and the life of your family better is fine. But we talked about the situation in these Central American countries. There's a great article um, in Bloomberg, and I know that you've also done some of this work about just how pathetic 
our balancing efforts are here. In other words, that we're trying to deal with, for example, help help government deal with gangs in Honduras, or using various other methods to try to mitigate the situation back home to stem the flow of migration. And then you look at the numbers. Um, so get this. In 2020, remittances sent by migrants to their relatives in Mexico rose year on year 10% to $41.5 million. They surged 27% in 2021, 13% in 22, to a total of $58.5 billion. That, by the way, folks, is the equivalent of 60% of Mexico's total public social spending in 2019. Now, you know, we can talk about why this happened, but then let's talk about the kind of money we're giving to these countries to see if it stops. Last year, we gave, under this particular plan, we gave $240 million to Guatemala. Remittances to Guatemala surpassed $19 billion. What do you think they're going to do? Are they going to take our money and fix their problems at home and try to encourage people to stay? Or are they going to go, hey, here's a bus, take it, $19 billion versus $240 million. How did we get so insanely out of whack? I mean, look, right now, remittances are 20% of Guatemala's GDP, and they are over a quarter of El Salvador's and Honduras, and somewhere around there for Haiti as well. I can't remember the number in Haiti. I mean, it's a massive amount, right? And so there are people in the governments in Central America that are trying to figure out legal pathways. I would have to say they, they've kind of gotten the memo on that, that it's better to have people go legally. But Governments are complex things, and I think there isn't a lot of urgency in some of these countries and in some of the governments to, to stop it, right? The other thing that happens, I spent a lot of time in, in rural Guatemala the past couple of years, and, you know, one of the things, I, that's kind of my summer project is is getting out and actually talking to people. You see, this is kind of my visual that sticks with me in my head always. Every municipal town you go to, these are small municipal rural towns, there's a private university, private high school and a private university. I mean, this is a dirt poor community. How is it possible? Well, it's possible because people are sending remittances back. So the government ha doesn't have an incentive to put a high school or a university, but those that have remittances then have the ability to actually get their kid a college education, right? But it does create this perverse incentive you're talking about where governments say, wow, well, there's already a university. I don't really need to worry about this. There's already a high school you know, and then the people that, that stay behind that have decided not to migrate are looking at this and going, wow, I want my children also to go to college, right? I mean, the only way you can do this is to migrate. And so it creates that reinforcing cycle and people go. But I mean, as I listen to you, I think about the fact that they're doing these things on the back of the U.S. taxpayer. These people aren't paying into Social Security. These people aren't paying taxes. These people are part of the, the underground economy. And then they're going to their bodegas or whatever they're going to and, and sending their money back. And worse yet, in some jurisdictions, then going to, you know, the University of Virginia, for example, on my dime at in-state rates. You know, this is the kind of thing that makes people mad. Actually, Rightly so. Although I got to say, actually, I mean, just on the fiscal side, we're actually coming out pretty good because a lot of people are paying Social Security, but they're not able to collect it at the end. Social Security is floating thanks to a lot of people that pay in and aren't able to collect it at the end, right, according to a number of studies that have been done by now. You know, 
and they are in fact paying taxes. They're not all paying income taxes, right? I mean, it depends whether you're in the formal or informal sector. A lot of people get false social security, which are false social security are actual security numbers, social security numbers, right? And they're paying in, but they're not out. But some people are in the informal economy. You're right. But they're still paying all sorts of state and local taxes. They're paying sales tax. They're paying rent. And, and through rent are paying, ta- you know, paying taxes. So indirectly. So they end up paying a lot of taxes. Um, the studies that we've seen, you know, the National Academies did a big study that suggests that over time they're probably paying in more than they're getting out, actually. So I worry less about that, although I do worry about the fact we have a giant underground economy, right? I mean, I think that's a problem. I don't think we want to have a giant underground economy in our country. I think that is a huge issue. You know, and we've created incentives for everything from IT programmers, you know, to construction workers to to work in this gray economy. Um, and that is a problem. I've got to tell you, I'm, I'm a little shocked by your analysis of this because the idea you're saying that this mass illegal migration isn't isn't a burden on American society. There's human trafficking taking place. The flood of fentanyl is at a record level into this country coming over the border with these folks. The cartels are using the migrants to get the fentanyl over because they send a bunch of migrants in no, one no, part of the border. Not. And then they, what they do is they the cartels send a bunch of migrants into one area of the border to get the, get the border patrol over there, which is completely understaffed, and then they go on another part of the border to do it. So it, it's, it's it not is supported happening. by the numbers, Mark. I'm sorry. The border patrol catches very little fentanyl. Almost all the fentanyl is caught by OFO, which is ports of entry. They do catch marijuana, which is sent with migrants. That's true. But cocaine and fentanyl, it's very hard to find even any cases where this has happened. And where border patrol catches it, it's almost entirely at their interior inspection site. I mean, having just done a tour with the border patrol from San Diego to Brownsville, I mean, with, you know, three of my, two of my colleagues did all of it and the two of us did part of it. There is one place where fentanyl is coming through. Actually, it's around the, the area near Brownsville because they've gotten some new technology in there. But that's a little unusual, by the way. So, you know, fentanyl is coming through ports of entry. Cocaine's coming through ports of entry. It is, Border Patrol gets very little of it, but when they get it, they get it at the, the secondary inspection sites. I do think it's a problem. I mean, again, let's go back to where we start off. I think fiscally, we're actually doing okay on this. I think most of the people who come across are becoming you know, great parts of American society. They're working hard. You know, they're a credit to their country and ours. I think the real problem that we have, however, is we are encouraging an underground economy. That's not good. And I, I agree with you on the encouraging all sorts of human trafficking, things like that, that are going the great economy. There's that worries me a lot. trafficking going on. These children, the majority of the children who are being brought over here are yes. being raped on the way. Those they're are being the problems. Sold. No, the, the, Those it, are the problems. Drugs. Sex trafficking, uh, human trafficking. You have people coming over. They don't can't even identify who their guardians are, and they're being handed over to to traffickers. All of those are issues. I don't think we disagree. Unregulated immigration is is a crime, and unregulated immigration has a lot of victims, among them the migrants, but certainly people who live in border towns. We see this. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we all see this. This is a you know whether it's rampant crime or it's uh, overuse of resources. You know, uh, but I did ask a very specific question, which was whether or not this was costing the taxpayer. It's gotten worse, truly. But the other thing is, I mean, you know, it, it is true that there are uneven fiscal impacts, right? I mean, the fiscal impact over time could be could be a wash. It could be even to our benefit. But certainly there are uneven impacts in communities that are near the border. We have lots of people falling, for example, as they're, you know, off the wall. You have lots of people running through communities that have large numbers of people that arrive quickly. School systems that suddenly have, you know, 20 students who show up who haven't learned how to read or write, those are really impacts, right? And those impacts do happen unevenly across the country. So, you know, even if in one state or across the country we can say the fiscal impact might be positive over time, it may actually be a real burden in some of the local communities.
Can we talk a little bit about solutions here? Because this has all ended up basically in the court system. The court system is not a place in which we, in which we are intended to solve these kinds of problems. It is a, a mystery to me why the executive branch has moved so slowly. It's a very big mystery to me why Congress has, until now, right when they're about to, Republicans are about to introduce an immigration package, why Congress has not moved. Why? Why is this? I rem- remember Newt Gingrich making an issue of this in the presidential. Why does it just fester? You know, I, I mean, I think the first thing is immigration has become symbolic politics. I, I used to, you know, go to the office during the day. I used to tell people this, you know, in, in the morning I would say the issues we work on are at the, you know, they're everywhere in the news. Like, we, you know, we're working on the most important issue in the country. And by noon, I would realize that most of the conversation was about ideology and symbols and that very little of it was actually about policy, which is what we're trying to work on. And in fact, we have very few serious policy conversations on this issue. Um, so I think it is a hard issue to get at in terms of policy solution. And you, by the way, you can get people in the room who are of very different ideologies on this, and they could hammer out a solid set of policy ideas that they would agree with in principle. But if they're politicians, they're not going to be willing to go back and sell them to their constituents. And that's true on the left and on the right, right? You could get a Democrat and a Republican. You get, you know, three Democrats, three Republicans in the room. You could probably come out with a set of things that people be willing to give on and come up with some pragmatic answers. But at this point, it's very hard for either side to back down on this because it's not about policy. It's about selling symbols to people, right? Either you're trying to start a catastrophe on one side or you're treating people badly on the other side, right? This has become sort of a, you know, big symbolic issue. So what, what could we do? I mean, first of all, let's start with the tools we got. If there's no legislation, I think the tools we got is, you know, you get rid of Title 42 and you start processing under normal, uh, the normal way of processing people called Title 8, which requires that you actually run through some process and then you send people back to countries of origin with a five or 10 year ban, right? If they come in again, they're prosecutable, right? They're prosecutable for a misdemeanor or a felony. Um, Secondly, you go after smugglers. Third, you start to create protection pathways that are a lot narrower, that are important. I don't think we should stop giving people protection who need it. We know there are people running from dictators and from from drug cartels and from gangs that most of them probably can get secure protection in their country, but not everyone. And so we need to be much more clinical about finding those people ahead of time rather than at the border. Fourth, we need to be serious about giving people access to the legal pathways that exist to make sure they know about them and when it becomes possible expanding them. And again, that's really hard to do. If we can bring, and here, Mark, I agree with you from something you said earlier, if we can bring the numbers down, and I do agree that you have to bring the numbers down before we can have the legislative conversation, the numbers come down at the border, then is to have the time in, in Congress and say, you know, but only then are we going to be able to have a real conversation where we say, you know, what workers do we need in the future? How do they match with people out there? How do we expand the legal pathways in a controlled way that allows the workers we need to come into the jobs that we have? But I don't think we're going to get there without bringing the numbers down. Well, I agree with that. Uh, I don't agree that this is ideology and symbols. I mean, you just have to look at the only network out there that actually has people with a helicopter watching, showing the, the flows of migrants is Fox News. And if you watch Fox News and you see what's actually happening on the border, it's not ideology and symbols. It's record numbers of people crossing this border. It's the worst immigration, illegal immigration crisis we've had in American history. So, Mark, what do you think we ought to do? And this thing is spiraling out of control in a way that so you now have a situation where when this started, it was mostly Mexican and Central American migrants coming in and all the people who are following the law 
you know, I'm for legal immigration. All the people who used to follow the law just figured out, well, I just need to fly to Mexico City and get on a bus and cross the border and I can get in. And so now you have Russians and you have Chinese and you have every nationality coming across the southern border. And so it's unraveling the entire immigration system because it's not a Central American crisis at the border. You have refugees who are actual refugees and actual asylum seekers who can't get their asylum claims adjudicated because there are all these economic migrants gumming up the uh, the system Agreed. Uh, at that and so this is, and in fact, I think that's one reason to be much more clinical on asylum and actually do it earlier on, because the reality is this open asylum system that we have where anyone can apply, but no one ever gets a decision, you know, it takes five to 10 years, means not only do people file claims that aren't going to win, right, and encourages people to come to the border, but it means people that actually have protection needs aren't getting asylum. But right. I guess none of that gets fixed until we fix this and mm-hmm. until we take it seriously and treat it like the crisis that it is. We actually spend so much time talking about the crisis at the border that we forget that in addition to the border towns, in addition to the education system and the healthcare system that end up being victimized, we also end up seeing people who have genuine asylum needs, people who actually are running away from persecution, uh, being totally screwed. I have a friend, an Iranian friend, who applied for asylum the the guy yes. you know the guy is is he's here he speaks fluent english he's a college graduate he's had literal threats from the iranian government and his his uh, his papers haven't been processed at all there's no hope that they're going to be processed and even in order to move them along in the system he needs to hire an expensive yep. lawyer i mean it's and this is not just america this is the 500 a day who are coming across the channel into the uk this is the thousands who are coming into Italy across their borders. Well, we'll see what happens on Friday. I think the system's not going to work initially. But as of Friday, you know, assuming everything goes as planned, there's no last minute stay in the courts. It is going to be incredibly hard to get asylum between ports of entry. In fact, you can't get asylum. You can you can get withholding of removal if you show up between ports of entry. That'll be the first. That's a huge change. Now, this could be stayed in the courts. But as of Friday, you know, you have to make an appointment at a port of entry to be able to get asylum on U.S. soil. In return, they're going to open up processing centers where people can come in in countries of origin. So starting in Guatemala, Colombia, and then extending to other countries where people can be pre-screened. And if they're determined to have protection needs, but it's a fairly high standard, then they can be put on an airplane eventually. You know, it'll take a little time to process it, but they say they can do it in three months. We'll see. And eventually be, you know, be able to get into the United States, skipping the smuggler along the way. But it's going to become you know, almost impossible to get asylum unless you make an appointment. Now, there is a... I, I believe it when I see it. Well, I think they're going to get I'm, overrun on Friday. So I'm, this is my other... So one is what's going to happen legally. Secondly is, you know, and look, I believe in asylum, I, but I do think it's gotten to a point where where it's impossible I'm, to sustain the system as it exists, precisely because of what Danny says, because not only is it in creating an incentive for people to come but it's also backlogging the system for people with real genuine asylum needs, right? So, you you know, it's it's an unworkable system. We're all so. for asylum, all three of us here on the, on this podcast. Yeah, but I mean, Mark, remember how many people they, they finally revealed are waiting in Afghanistan? Oh, I know. Betrayed Massive by numbers. the Biden administration? Yep. How quickly are those poor schmucks being processed? They're being killed faster than they're being processed. There are hundreds of them in Mexico right now. There are hundreds of them actually who've gone through the Darien Gap because they gave up on waiting and they're going to try and come across the border too. But I this mean, is the problem. Yeah, real, a, 
It's real refugees, real real asylum seekers are, are getting, getting screwed right. uh, by, because of this. And on top of that, the the failure to take this problem seriously at the southern border and to and to and to treat it like the crisis that it is, the administration won't even call it a crisis, is turning people against my, against asylum seekers. Because people look at this and they see people gaming our system and they're like, you know what, screw it. Why, we, we, we can't be the refuge for everybody who wants asylum. And they're turning, it's turning people politically away from it. It's souring people on legal immigration. It's, I mean, this is just, the, it's a fundamental jo- a job of government is to defend the country and to have a border. If you don't have a border, you don't have a country. And, yeah. and so all the things that we want to do in terms of bringing more legal migrants in here and being a refuge for, for my mother was a refugee. You know, it's a stateless refugee after World War II. I want to bring refu- real refugees into this country. If we don't take this problem seriously and address it, then public support for that is not going to exist. I would hole. not call it a crisis in the sense, but I do think it's a problem that needs to be solved. And I think it's undermining our ability to do sensible things on, on immigration. And it's spawning, you know, and it's spawning some real issues for the transparency and the function of the system. So. Um, let's see what happens on Friday. My guess is the bigger issue than a stay in the courts is going to be they simply don't have the people to operate the system. Um, Having spent a fair amount of time with folks in the Border Patrol and the Office of Field Operations of CBP, um, my sense is they just are understaffed and they're not even close. I mean, they're better staffed than they were. They have a whole set of processing people that they've been able to hire over the past two years, which has helped on the Border Patrol side. But the numbers of people they're going to be dealing with on Friday and next week and the week after that, it is not clear to me they're going to be able to process people under Title VIII, the the normal way of processing people, which does take longer than Title 42. It's not clear to me that they're going to be able to, you know, hold people and do the, the hearings. It's not a hearing. It's actually an interview that allows them then to return people quickly to their the country of origin. It's not clear to me they have enough planes to return people to country of origin. If it works, if it starts to work the way the system you know, is going to play out as this, you know, once they can get numbers down a little bit, which is if you come between ports of entry, you will get an interview. If you do not meet a very high standard, you will be, which most people cannot meet, um, convention against torture standard, not an asylum standard. You will be returned to your country of origin. You'll be put on a plane under expedited removal, and you'll have a five or 10 year bar from returning. If you get an appointment at a port of entry, then you are eligible to be, have an asylum hearing or at least an asylum interview, a credible fear interview, and then maybe an asylum hearing. We'll see when they're able to make that work. I I don't hold out a lot of hopes that this system will be functioning next week. I do think it's the right way, though. I mean, I think they finally, the Biden administration has gone from being fairly open at the border. And, you know, as as you said, Mark, pushing back on a lot of stuff the Trump administration did, some of which I disagreed with, but some of which made sense, um, to now realizing that there's no way to sustain the asylum system as has existed in the past. And, you know, I think that is the reality, right? If we need to be checking people for protection closer to where they live, but not at the border. At the border has got to be a fail safe for a handful of people. The problem, Andrew, of course, is everything is a day late and a dollar short. If this had happened 20 years ago, 30 years years ago, three years ago, you could say the problem is that, you know, these are these are human waves and. You know, without one, uh, with without the security, the the new system can't work, and the security requires the kind of ruthlessness that, weirdly, the Biden administration doesn't want to impose. I don't want to get into the politics of this, but of course, the the views of legal Hispanic communities in America are very interesting on this question, right? Because they're very opposed to illegal immigration as well. I don't understand why they haven't gotten more serious, but you know, that's for another day. We'll, we'll see how this plays out. 
I think there's some evidence that they're going to be more clinical, but I don't know how it's going to look like in practice, to be honest with you. The other thing, of course, they're competing with is we've got a really tight labor market right now, right? And, and part of why people are coming is they're getting jobs, right? I mean, people are coming in and they are actually, you know, getting employed rather quickly right now. And they're coming from countries that are struggling to recover from the COVID-19 recession, right? Well, that's what we want. We want to, we want, we actually all want the same thing, which is to improve people's lives in a way that is efficient and legal and sustaining of I the hope, rule I hope of that law in our country. Yeah, and I, I hope over time what we do is that we tamp down the number of people coming to the border, and that happens this year. I hope. You know, we'll see. I know you're a skeptic, but I'm we'll see what happens. You're not holding your breath. I don't yeah. think it's going to happen next week. I mean, look, next week is going to be <laughs> chaos. I agree. But let's see what happens, you know, where we are not on, you know, May 12th, but on August 12th and September 12th, if they can get control of this. And then I hope we have a serious conversation with the Republicans and Democrats in the Congress about what are the labor market needs we have in this country. What is the – by the way, we have an immigration system. You guys know this. I know you think the same on this. Our immigration system is from 1965 with, like, tweaks in 1990 and 1996. And at some point, we should be talking about what our immigration system should be that fits into the economy of the 21st century. We're not going to get to that conversation if we can't agree that there's a crisis. It's the kind of political semantics that have meant that we're not able to solve half these problems because, you know, because we won't use one piece of vocabulary over another. If we all agree that there needs to be a solution, whether you call it a crisis or not, is simply a litmus test of the kind that goes on in, yeah. a, in a political campaign. You know, we need to solve the problem. I actually don't think we're that far apart of what the solution is here, actually. But yes, we might have different degrees of, of emphasis, but I, but I I do think we all agree that, that, that we need to see numbers go down. I, I probably put more emphasis on doing protection, but frankly, I don't think you can do it at the border anymore. I think that, that ship has sailed. I think it mostly has to happen, you know, before people get to the border and, and got to be a lot tougher at the border on it. So, And that's a change. Look, I think this is, by the way, I've, I've spent much of today talking to colleagues from Europe who are in town. And they're in the same place, right? I mean, they're also trying to figure out how to do this. The Chileans are in a similar place. I mean, you know, there's a lot of countries around the world that have seen asylum systems get overwhelmed, and they're trying to figure out now how does this not become the attraction that, that let's go. Oh, not easy issues. Andrew, thank you. Thank not you for uh, thank you for a, a fascinating so conversation and and for being and for being compassionate. Uh, you know, this this requires rule of law and it requires compassion and it requires and it requires determination. So uh, I have a feeling Mark and I are going to have a knockdown drag out argument uh, in our intro. But um, but we're very grateful to you for schlepping by the office and chatting with us. It's great to be with you. No, and it's great to debate these topics. So. Annie and Mark, thanks for having me on. Thank we really you for coming. do. Take care. It. Okay, so Mark, I have a $64,000 question. And for people who don't know what that means, go and Google it. Used to be you. a lot of money before we were spending trillions in Washington. Oh, this was even before we were spending billions, I hate to say. I think it's a fifth 1960s game show. Yes. But here's my question. What are we going to do about these people? So some years back, if you recall, one of the centerpieces of Republican debate, I think it might have been 2012, was what do we do about the 11 million undocumented aliens, illegal aliens, I don't give a damn what you call them, in this country? You know, there's arguments about whether they're dreamers, what should we, we should do with their kids. Now we've got even more of them whose kids are born in this country. What should we do with these folks? This is a problem uh, politically. So you had the 11 million or so that had come previously. And now you have 
millions more that are coming into this country on this administration's watch, which decimates the political will come to any kind of compromise that allows some sort of exchange of, you know, pay a penalty and get like some some legal status. There's just no political will for that. And, you know, right. there's no political will on the right. Well, mean. there's no political will on the right. But also, you know, this is this is something that independents and, and even some reasonable Democrats agree with Republicans on. That they, if you just look at the polling, people consider this a crisis. People think this is bad. And including people who believe in legal immigration, the American people believe in legal immigration, but they don't believe in illegal immigration. And so if you can't get the crisis at the southern border under control, then it undermines support for legal immigration, and it certainly undermines any kind of support for some kind of compromise that normalizes the status of people who came in here legally, especially uh, the, the most sympathetic group of those are children uh, who came in through, through no fault of their own, came as children and grew up in America and are the same as any of our kids except for their legal status. So it's a big problem. This is undermining any chance of having some kind of solution that uh, that is generous towards those people. And so it's it's incredibly it's politically toxic to not have control of your borders because I think among the litany of worst that this administration unleashed, the worst inflation in 40 years, the worst collapse in real wages in four decades, the worst crime wave since the 1990s. You can go on and on with the list of worst. One of the worst is the worst labor crisis in American history, the worst labor shortage. We have more unfilled jobs in America than we have ever had. And we are never going to recover from the, in this economy unless we have more workers. And the way you get, bring in more workers when people, as we've discussed in a previous podcast, young people don't feel the need to procreate <laughs> American citizens here is you bring in immigrants. And immigrants are essential to our ability to grow as a country. And we need to bring legal immigrants into this country to fill jobs that ha- half of small businesses in the country say, I, can't, I have an open job and I can't find somebody for it. But when you have this crisis of illegal immigration coming into the country, then it tamps down any possibility of bringing in more poor people legally. So job one to stop the toxic, racist theories on the, uh, on the right, the lack of desire to bring in people who will fill those jobs is get control of the fucking border. There's been a lot of bad language on this podcast but I do think that even though I think we had some, you certainly had some disagreement with, with Andrew about the nature of the crisis, not crisis, whatever you want to call it, uh, at the border, I think we did have absolute consensus that without that, without being able to manage that, whether you are a Democrat, a Republican, a leftist, a rightist, no matter where you are, you are not going to be able to solve this to the benefit of the American people or the benefit of genuine good people who want to immigrate to this country. And and that, you know, there's a lot of shame on us here because the truth is this has been allowed to fester for years and years and years. It's been way too long and this shouldn't be an object of political score settling. This shouldn't be a question of, you know, Fox versus MSNBC. This should be a question of our national interest. But as with absolutely bloody everything else, we simply can't get past, right, the politics of all of it in order to talk about reasonable solutions. You know what? I, I First of all, I agree with you on reasonable solutions, but... I think we can't get past it until both sides acknowledge that there's a problem. But Mark, we, we, we couldn't this, get past this, this it when there was a trickle. But by dismissing it that way, 
the reason we ha- we're not solving these larger problems, the reason why we can't bring more refugees into this country. I, and my mother was a stateless refugee. I want to bring people into this country who are Americans in their heart or they just haven't gotten here yet. I want more legal immigrants. I want people to come into this country and work and uh, that people who want to come in here legally, who follow the rules, who love this country enough that they think that they should follow our laws. And until we address yeah, get, the problem, I, I all acknowledge that it's a problem, it. work together to solve it, none of that's going to happen. Right, except the only... the but, only And just dismiss only it as... Flaw, fo- fo- no, sorry, hang on. The only flaw in your argument is that we haven't dealt with this in 50 years, okay? We didn't have millions of people crossing the border illegally 30 years ago, 20 years ago, and we still didn't deal with it. There has been an absolute dereliction of duty on the part of our leaders, Republicans and Democrats. And you can say we have to get the crisis in hand in order to and acknowledge the crisis in order to fix this problem. But the bottom line is, even if there weren't a crisis, they wouldn't freaking fix this problem well, maybe that's true, but it's slipping further and further away okay, because of the that. crisis. And thank you I'll for calling it a that. crisis. Okay. And, and and we can stop because Danny finally acknowledges it's a crisis. So we okay. so we, that we've made we've made progress on the path towards solving it because you can't solve a crisis if you don't admit it exists. You are a nudnik from hell. Absolutely, you're, I'm not right next to you, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, it's always a delight. We'd love to hear what you think, and uh, we'll see you next week. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.